Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to the Forum. Welcome to the Spiritual Forum, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. We're in the middle of the holiday season now, and I hope you're enjoying it. I want to say thank you to all who participate in the Spiritual Forum ministry. This is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to thespiritualforum.org. Also, if you're moved to donate, this is a 100% donation-based podcast at this point in time. You can also donate there at thespiritualforum.org. This podcast is about practical spiritual living, and it's a message of hope, inspiration, and awakening in the world. Today, my guests and I will be exploring an age-old story, and I invite you to enter into this conversation with these questions. Am I being called by the divine to step into a new way of life? Is there some aspect of myself that keeps me bound or unfree that I'm ready to leave behind? And is there a person in my life who I need to unbind so that they could freely step into a new way of life. My guest, Reverend James Martin, and I will be exploring this and more during this podcast. Let me introduce him now. Reverend James Martin is a Jesuit priest, editor-at-large of America Magazine, consultant at the Vatican's Dicastery of Communication, and author of three New York Times bestsellers. I'll have links to those bestsellers in the show notes. Father Martin is a frequent commentator on national and international media. He's appeared on all the major networks and outlets like The Colbert Report, NPR's Fresh Air, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. In his latest book, Come Forth, he examines one of the most intriguing events in the New Testament, the story of Jesus raising Nazareth from the dead, and he explains its, its significance for us today. Welcome, Jim. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Good to be with you. <laughs> Yeah, we all we got it all figured out how we're going to refer to That's each right. other before we before we push the record button. It's really great to have you. I'm very intrigued by your life, your ministry, and this book that you've just recently read. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about who you are for a few minutes so that the audience can know your spiritual journey and how you got to writing this book. And I understand that you were a graduate of business school as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So for those who don't know me, as you say, I'm a Jesuit priest, which is a Catholic religious order. Gosh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, not super religious. I went to the Wharton School of Business, worked for, gosh, six years in corporate America at GE, uh, formerly big company, now fallen on a little bit of hard times. And then I was kind of dissatisfied with what I was doing and joined the Jesuits, went through, gosh, 11 years of training, was ordained as a priest. It takes a long time. And I've been working at a Catholic magazine called America for 25 years. I feel so old. And, and I just wrote this book on Lazarus, which has always been my favorite gospel story. And you know, it's funny, Carol, I, I should have used that word in the book. I think intriguing is such a great word. It is an intriguing story and it always intrigued me. So I, it's really been a fascinating journey for me. You know, I love the stories of transformation where people start off in one mm -hmm. career and then are called to something that's more God-centered, spiritual. Uh, I, I too had a, a background like that. I, I have a degree in chemical engineering. I worked in the oil business for 20 years. <laughs> wow. 
I didn't, I didn't wake up as fast as you did. I spent 20 years in that. No, it took me a long time. I mean, it took me six years. And it is funny, though, because, you know, some people, I'm sure you run into people like this. They think that you, you know, were born a minister, you know, or a pastor, like you came out of the womb, you know, talking about Jesus. And I said, it took me a while. And I had a life, you know, I had a real life. I had bosses and I had, you know, bills to pay and a salary and all that. And I think most of us in the ministry these days have had that kind of life. But people sometimes think that you know nothing about, quote unquote, the real world, which always kind of makes me smile. Yeah, it is kind of a funny thing. I, I, I think the experience of the, quote, real world really informs one as a minister. And, and also, it also kind of <laughs> pushes you into a more meaningful life, I think. I know personally, yeah, I, I had also, no I, idea whatsoever. Yeah. I also think it helps you understand, you know, the way that most people live. You know, they go to work, they get a salary. And, you know, also I go to work too. And I also laugh. Sometimes people say, well, the real world. And I said, you know, well, my, my world is pretty real too. So it's everybody's <laughs> world is pretty real to them. So, but it is funny. I, I think it gives you a better sense of just the way that, you know, people live their lives. And I think it's, for, for me, it was important to, you know, have a, have a life where I went to work and had you know, responsibilities and things like that. And, and again, and I, I work pretty hard today too. So it was good training all around. Yeah. It's just a different kind of work. I, mm -hmm. I'm really interested in just kind of jumping into your book. I don't want to lose sight of some really important elements of your ministry. So perhaps I'll cover that in the end. But before we start and talking about Lazarus, do you have any just kind of bottom line, succinct message that you have for people? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So the book is Come Forth, The Promise of Jesus' Greatest Miracle. It is a deep dive into the story of the raising of Lazarus, which I'm sure a lot of your readers know from the Gospel of John, often called Jesus' Greatest Miracle. And the, the sort of takeaway from the book is that God calls each of us into new life in different ways in our lives, you know, and to leave behind in our tombs, you know, our kind of metaphorical tombs, anything that keeps us bound or unfree or stuck, you know. And so the book is a, a, an examination and a deep dive into the story from a biblical point of view, looking at it, you know, line by line sometimes and looking at what biblical scholars say, but a spiritual point of view, you know, what does this have to say to our lives today? A cultural point of view, I look at Lazarus through kind of art and culture and even a little bit of a travelogue because I take people to current day Bethany where you can visit Lazarus's tomb. People are often surprised to find that out. So it's all those four things kind of wrapped up together. But really, the takeaway from the book is God calls each of us in different ways into new life. And I show how that's possible and how to respond to that in the book. Yeah, it's a really uplifting message. Would you Thanks. just really briefly tell the story of Lazarus? Because I have a real broad range of listeners. Not everyone is Christian. N not everyone is familiar with the story. But everyone's kind of on the path to awakening to you know, their, their truth. So could you really succinctly tell us that story? I'm happy to. So for those who don't know, it comes in the Gospel of John, one of the four Gospels, and it comes halfway through John's Gospel. And two friends of Jesus named Martha and Mary, who live in a town called Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem, which is, again, still there, send word to Jesus that their brother is ill. And they call him, he whom you love. Very beautiful. He whom you love is ill. Jesus is across the Jordan River because he's been threatened with stoning. And he waits a couple days, very sort of mysteriously, finally comes up to Bethany. The sisters both meet him and say pretty strongly, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus said, where have you laid him? 
They say, come and see, which is very interesting. The first words that Jesus says to his disciples in the gospel of John. Now they're saying it to him, come and see. He goes to the tomb. There's a big crowd there. He weeps. I go into reasons why people think he's weeping, not just sadness. And then he says, take away the stone. So remember, Lazarus has been dead for four days by this point. And Jesus stands at the, at the tomb and prays first and then says, Lazarus, come forth or Lazarus, come out, which is more literal. And Lazarus comes out in his grave cloths and he says, unbind him and let him go. And so, you know, he's restoring his friend and the brother of his friends, Martha and Mary, to life. It's, it is the, there are three times when Jesus raises people from the dead. The other two are sort of not, not as kind of dramatic, uh, I think, because the person hasn't been in the tomb for four days. And so, again, Jesus' greatest miracle. So I do a real deep dive into this story and say, you know, where does it come from? Can we believe it? You know, who are these people and what does it mean for us today? You know, as you were telling the story of, of Mary and Martha, and I think about, gosh, how frustrated they just must have been, you know. Oh, yeah. I think about how oh, yeah. the times I said, if only, if only this, then that. Yeah. And how we can use that to kind of beat ourselves up for not acting quickly enough or not acting appropriately. If only, then that. And uh, I think it's a really interesting lesson in just kind of trusting, trusting spirit and all things will work out. And then as you're, as you're speaking, I don't know if you can see this, but this is my water bottle. Oh my gosh. Come and see. That's great. That's really great. Well, I'll tell you, you know, Carol, I didn't realize it's, I'm sure you had this experience too. You know, you read these stories a, a hundred, maybe a thousand times and something jumps out at you, even the Lazarus story. And it wasn't until I started to do my research that to sort of go back a little bit at the very beginning of John's gospel, you know, he meets Andrew and Peter and, and the disciples say to him, this is before, you know, this is just before he's calling them. They say, where do you stay? And he says, come and see, you know, which is this great invitation, which is, but this is what the, the sisters, Martha and Mary say to Jesus in the Lazarus story, which I didn't really realize until I was doing this research. Where have you laid him? Meaning where, where is the tomb? And they say, come and see which is so beautiful. So Jesus at the beginning of the gospels is saying to the disciples, come and see, you know, follow me. And now Martha and Mary saying that to Jesus, come and see, you know, and, and like help us bring someone to life too. It's just, it's just, I find that, you know, the gospel writers obviously inspired by God. We, I believe it's just genius. It's just, and it's also just, you know, this is the way it happened. I think God's kind of opening up these stories for us and what am I trying to say? Basically, you can read a gospel story, you know, a million times and still get something new out of it. So come and see was that for me. Yeah, I agree. I, it's interesting because the stories are very, very, they're not long and elaborate. They, they, <laughs> they don't set the stage and give you the scene and introduce all the characters and have all these backstories. Exactly. They're pretty simple, you know, sentence, oh, yeah. sentence, phrase, phrase. And then we still miss stuff in yeah, the very beginning of the story, which I love, just the very, uh, and I have the, the story in the book uh, at the very beginning. It just starts out, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. <laughs> and you just say, who? I'm like, where'd this guy come <laughs> from, right? And there's very little that you, he's, he's called he whom you love, you know, so the sisters obviously knew that Jesus was very close to him, but you don't get any sense of, oh, Jesus knew Lazarus from here because in the gospels, and this is one of the things I say in the book. The, the point of view of the gospel writers was we want to, you know, help you to come to believe in Jesus. And so the focus is always relentlessly on Jesus. 
And they're not really interested in some of the other stuff that we would be interested in. Like, who is this guy and how did they know him and what happened afterwards? And I just find that really kind of charming. You know, it's like the childhood of Jesus. We know very little about that. There's a couple incidents. And I remember asking my New Testament professor and they said the gospel writers just weren't interested in that. And all the stuff that we would definitely want to know, like, what was it like when he grew up and all this kind of stuff? They just don't. We don't get it, you know, and because they're focused relentlessly on his public ministry and for us to believe in that. So I think it's kind of I think it's kind of charming, but it leaves us a lot of room to kind of speculate and ponder. Yeah, definitely. The culture was different and what they were interested in. They were not making big motion pictures like we do today. Yeah, well, it's not a biography. And also, as as a number of people have said, there weren't reporters taking notes. Right. So this is this is passed down through oral culture first until it was written down in the gospel. So first came the oral tradition, which I find fascinating, too, which is why there's some sometimes discrepancy between, you know, different stories in the gospels. You know, it's not surprising it's passed down in a different way. But I, I find I talk a lot about the, the construction of the gospels and the editing of the gospels in the book because I find it endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Now, I'm a unity minister, and I don't know if you know anything about unity, but I, I look at the Bible historically, but I, we also look at it metaphysically, metaphorically. That's one of the things I loved about your book is you you walk us through the Holy Land. You walk us through the historicity of the Gospels and this particular story. And then we go into what does it mean for us today? Like, who are we in this story? And I think that's the biggest takeaway for people. The miracle is, you know, fantastic. And I think it really got Jesus into trouble. But then there's also how, how, does, how does this pertain to my life? Because I think a lot of people don't identify with Bible stories because these are people a long time ago. And we don't even know if it's real. And, you know, all the things that people put forth as arguments why, why we shouldn't pay attention to it. But ultimately, I think these stories do help us live our lives, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, so it, it works on a couple different levels. So, you know, as a Christian, I believe these stories happened. And I, I don't mean that in a kind of, I say in the book, a kind of vague way, like, oh, yeah, it's a truth. I mean, you know, I think if you were at Bethany, you would have seen more or less, you know, what's described in the Gospels. But that's a really good question, Carol, because we can say, all right, you know, I believe in the story, but like, okay, so what? So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And again, the point of the book is to say that in our lives, there are certain things, if you think of Lazarus in the tomb, and, and Jesus calling to Lazarus and Lazarus having to, you know, get out of the tomb and come out. You know, there's so many parallels in our own lives. Are there kind of practices or habits or sometimes even addictions or compulsions or just, you know, sort of unhealthy ways of living that we're called to let go of? You know, I always say, you know, anything that kind of prevents you from from following God in a in a in a full way, you know, is a kind of is a kind of burden, is a kind of something that needs to die, right? And so what needs to die in our lives, right, to enable us to hear God's voice and to, and to live and to walk out into the light? And that's Lazarus's story. Because, you know, Lazarus has to hear Jesus's voice. He trusts that it is God that's calling him. And I think anytime that we're, we're, we're sort of invited into freedom, it's God's voice. I really believe that, whether it comes through a friend or an insight in prayer or a therapist or reading a book or watching a movie, if we feel that movement or that invitation in new life and a fuller life, I think that's always coming from God. And so it's, it is like God saying to us, come forth, right? And, and the question is, you know, can we trust in that and, and walk out of our tombs in a sense? 
Yeah, the tomb is kind of interesting as a metaphor. And I think about mm. just like, what is it like when I am in a deep, 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 deep slumber and somebody tries to wake me up? And, you know, that's that's very much short of death. But it's like, how does that feel? It's like, you know, you're trying to mm. kind of crawl out of out of this space of, of, of deep slumber into an awakening. And I start off by saying this is a podcast of hope, inspiration, and awakening. And awakening to who we truly are, who we are as God's beloved sons and daughters, as, as you know, wonderful human beings with the spark of divinity within us, at least that's what I believe, that that wake-up call has got to be a little, it is a little, it's shocking at first, you know. So I think about Lazarus in the tomb, how to be shocked out of death. You know, we are shocked out of this, this slumber of behaving in ways that aren't really truly ourselves. And then we've got to clamor out of this darkness and come to the, the light yeah. of awakening. No, that's a great way of saying it. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. And it's funny, after you write a book, you have all these insights from people who tell you things. And I think I could have used that as, a, as, a, as an example, like when people are waking you up, you know, like literally waking you up. Or, you know, Something we all deal with is how do we get woken up out of a funk, you know, if we're in a lousy mood and we just, you know, those experiences just feel mopey and grumpy and nothing's going right. And, you know, you need a bit of a shock sometimes to to wake you. By the same token, sometimes it can be very gentle. You know, someone can wake you up in a very gentle way and it can be very slow and very kind of quiet. But the 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 key is to kind of respond and to say that this is God calling me into new life. But you're right. You know, the other thing about coming, coming out of the tomb, you were, you were reminding me, is that a lot of times we need help from other people. And in the gospel story, there are two lines that always I find fascinating. One is Jesus stands at the, at the tomb, which is covered by a stone, and he says, take away the stone in the gospel story. Now, why is he, Jesus could have, you know, the guy could have just appeared or Jesus could have snapped his fingers or whatever. And then he says at the end, untie him and let him go, right? Unbind him. He's still in his grave claws. And you think now, why, you know, why couldn't Lazarus have just come out, you know, whatever, fully clothed or naked or wearing a what, some sort of like, I don't know, like a robe or something. And I think it's because it's a reminder from Jesus that, that the people, the crowd has to participate. And so we're called to participate in the freeing of other people, right? And, and other people help us to be free, right? So even if, you know, Carol, like you, you, you wake out of, out of your slumber or you sort of, in a sense, are, are sort of understanding where you need to move, people need to help you. You know, you, you still need help and we need to help other people. So it's also about helping other people out of their tombs and letting go of their grave cloths as well. Yeah, I, lo I love that. So it's a whole community that's part of the awakening process. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of yeah. people resist that awakening. They want to stay in their slumber. Sure. They want to stay in their dark places. And I even think about the times when I'm mad <laughs> and, and there's oh, something yeah. that feels good no, about being mad and do not tell me not to be mad. I want to stay mad for a while. And <laughs> that's like, I want to stay no, in tune. You know, I, I, I sort of struggle with that too. And, you know, in the Jesuits, we talk about the good spirit and the evil spirit and the good spirit is the spirit that kind of moves you towards God and the evil spirit is the one that moves you away from God or a counter spirit. And I think we can kind of get stuck in that place. I mean, it's not like we're possessed or anything, but we can get stuck in that place of just just stuckness. 
And I think, you know, this is one of the things the story says to us that we're always being offered new life and that it's also a choice too. You know, Lazarus has to decide if he's going to kind of get up out of the tomb. Right. I'll tell you something funny. One of the points of this book of Come Forth is also a cultural history of Lazarus. So Lazarus in, in fine arts, especially, but also in poetry and plays. And one of the themes, Carol, which, which is really funny, which I found fascinating in a lot of the plays and a lot of the poetry is that Lazarus doesn't want to come back <laughs> because he's happy where he is. Right. He's, you know, he's in heaven or whatever. And it's just, why did you bring me back, you know, <laughs> into this kind of, you know, sort of like mixed up life. And I think a lot of us are like that. We don't want to come out of the tomb. It's easier for us to stay. And as I say in the book, you know, death feels like life and life feels like death. I mean, we're, we're comfortable in our, in our kind of stuckness, but God is always, look, the thing is God's always inviting us. God's always saying, come forth to us every moment of the day. I think that's the biggest takeaway that this come forth message is always coming through us. Come forth. May your best, best self come forth. Who can I be in this situation? What can I bring forth in this situation that mirrors God, that mirrors the divine, that mirrors the best of me? What, what is hidden within me? I, I, I think about that too. What is hidden with me? So many of us keep our best selves hidden. We're afraid of success. We're afraid to, to speak. We're afraid to, to be the powerful person that we are. And so we keep parts of ourselves kind of hidden and that God is always calling that forth. Come forth. Come forth as all of you, all that I created you to be. Absolutely. And you know, it's funny you should say that because I was thinking it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a two-pronged process. One is, as you say, every moment of the day. There, there, I really do think, and in Jesuit spirituality, it's finding God in all things, which means in all places and all events and all people. So yeah, every moment of the day, every interaction is really an invitation to, you know, as you say, come forth. And then there's kind of like long-term things, right? The long-term things, like for example, if you're, let's just say you're always a, gosh, like a sarcastic person or something, or you have a quick tongue and you realize you have to let go of that because you've hurt somebody or someone's told you like, hey, that's really mean. And it's a long process because you've been a sarcastic person or a quick-tongued person for years and years and years, maybe for decades. And that takes a long time. So it's both, it's kind of both end. It's the, it's the moment-to-moment -moment stuff that you're talking about. And it's also long-term stuff, you know, that God is asking you to leave behind in the tomb. So, but you're right. It's, it's, it's the constant, you know, the, the constant refrain is for, of Jesus is, is life and his other constant refrain is fear not. And you're right. It's, it's, it's nothing to be afraid of. It's something to really welcome. Yeah, I know in your book, you talk about how when somebody does choose to change, that people tend to want to keep them in, in the place that they've known them to be. So the example you use yeah. If you're a sarcastic person, if you kind of have a bitter tongue or if you're unhappy all the time, whatever it is, and when that person answers the call to change and to leave that behind and to step into a new life, that the people around them often want to keep them boxed into the way they were. <laughs> yeah, and I think the best way to understand this, which again, I probably should have put in the book, is, you know, if you've known someone all your life as like a gosh, from like elementary school or college or whatever, I'm talking to those of us who are older, maybe to younger audiences with someone that you might have done in grammar school or elementary school. And then you see them a couple of years later and they're different. 
maybe they're more confident, they're more adult, they're more at peace, they're more relaxed, they're more chill about stuff, you know, they don't let things, whatever happens. It's kind of hard for people to accept them like that, like this is an adult who has changed. We tend to be uncomfortable with change. We tend to, you know, have a hard time interacting with the person in a different way. And so it's allowing that person to come out, right, and come forth and, and as you say, be their best self, be their true self, be who they are. And that's a gift, you know, and, and in other words, it's a gift to allow that person to be who they are. And, you know, as Jesus says in the story, which is so beautiful, you know, unbind him or unbind her and let her go, let her go free. Like, let her be, which again, I should have put in the book. I'm just realizing this. <laughs> You're going to have to write another one. Let, I have to write another one. You know, let her be who she is. Let her go free. I just realized that I should have put that in the book. But yeah, that's, that's the idea. Like, let her go free. You know, let your new friend go free and not, not let go of them, but let them be who they are. Yeah. And I think that all of these thinking about other things to put in your book what I think it really shows is that you are encouraging the reader, like me, to find my own interpretation as I'm listening and, and reading your story. And so I, I come up with this idea or that idea. And so you're doing great work allowing my mind and oh, my heart thanks. to open and come up with other thanks. scenarios. Thanks. Although as an author, I'm thinking, oh, I should have put that in there. <laughs> yeah, because the Bible, I mean, you know, we will agree, is, is the living word. And, and it speaks to us and it speaks to people in different ways. And it speaks to different people in different ways. And what I get out of the story of Lazarus may not be what someone else gets out or what the reader gets out. And one of the great things about writing is that sometimes I find this, I've been writing for a long time now. And You'll you'll write some throwaway line that you would think is just almost like a like a well obviously this is this is almost like a a truism and people will say oh, that changed my life I, so it's like the gospels I mean you you read this one line and suddenly things make sense and it kind of unlocks the story like I said like that come and see line where the where the two sisters say to Jesus come and see it's so beautiful yeah you yeah. know and the other line there's so many great lines in this story. You know, the other line I focus on a lot is Martha and Mary saying word for word the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, that is usually it is presented in preaching as this is their profession of faith, which, I, you know, is true. I mean, they believe that. But it's a little bit of a reproach, too. Mm -hmm. You know, where were you? And how many times have we all said to God, where were you? Mm -hmm. And they say it to Jesus, you know, bluntly face to face. So point being that there, there are lots of places where. The, the Gospels and the Bible speak to us in very personal ways, which is which is exactly what they're supposed to do. Yeah, I interpret that as blame, you know, like the it's, it's almost like I'm putting mm. this on you and why weren't you here? And that yeah. that's such a human thing that we do. You know, it's it, I, oh, I just oh, feel that all totally. the time. If only. Yeah. And, you know, they're th yeah, they're they're very human. I mean, I, I focus a lot, obviously, on Lazarus and the book and Jesus is the central character. But. Martha and Mary, I spend a lot of time with them because, as you say, Carol, they are so human. Mm -hmm. I mean, Martha and Mary uh, appear in Luke's gospel, too, where Jesus visits their house and Martha complains and says to Jesus, tell her to help me. Who, who says that to Jesus? But I also say that in the book that Martha and Mary show us the value of being honest with God. They are very honest with Jesus because they're close to him. And you only speak to people in that way that you're close to. 
in Luke's gospel, Martha, for those who don't know, Jesus visits their health and, and Martha, Martha is complaining that Mary isn't doing any work. She's just listening to Jesus. And Martha says to Jesus, tell her to help me, which is just extraordinary. And then in the gospel story of Lazarus, they say to him very bluntly, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And it's they're close to Jesus. And so they can speak with him in that way. And I think it's an invitation for us to be honest with God in our prayer. I love the Mary and Martha story. I remember when I was doing ministry at my church, mm-hmm. I loved telling that story. And, you know, when are we Mary and when are we Martha? And even to tell her to help me, right. to me, it's like, why don't you, why don't you directly speak to your sister? Why are you looking to this authority figure to tell her something? To me, that's really kind of absolving your own responsibility with your relationship with your sister to get Jesus to do something. Oh, no. That, another thing I should have put, another thing I should have put in the book. That's a great insight that, yeah, it's almost like, why is, that's a great, that's a, I never thought of that. Why doesn't Martha just say to Mary, come here, know, come help me. Uh, help me. That's a great, that's a really profound insight. Why is she saying that to Jesus? But, you know, it's so natural. I mean, it it's is. so natural. Like we in that, that situation. Yeah. Ra- rather than confronting your sister, you go to the, you go to the other person and say, tell her to help me. Uh, I think the other great thing is that the characters of Martha and Mary are the same in Luke's gospel as they are in John's gospel. In one, at least as they're portrayed, Martha is the quote unquote active one. She, you know, is working. And then Martha in the, in John's story, in the story of the raising of Lazarus, rushes out to see Jesus first. So it's kind of cool that their personalities shine through. It, it, it is interesting because I, I look at Mary and Martha as, you know, aspects of the self. And sometimes being Martha and being active is what's mm-hmm. called for. And sometimes being more just sitting at Jesus's feet and listening and, and just appreciating the, the divinity of the moment is what's called for. And I think, though, that we often do this, get busy in the kitchen and avoid, avoid the mir- miracle that's right before us. Yeah, and that's a great point. I often say that we're called to be both of them. Mm-hmm. And I think in that story of Martha and Mary, it's, it, it's sort of unfairly, people use it to unfairly denigrate active people, right? So Jesus says to Martha when she complains in Luke's gospel, oh, Martha, Martha, you're concerned about so many things. And I'm sure you've, been, you've heard this you know, many times. If you're very busy, someone will say, oh, Martha, Martha, you know, you're so busy. But, you know, sometimes people have to be busy and sometimes, you know, someone has to do the work. And as you say, but sometimes we do need to be the contemplative one. So we're called to be both Martha and Mary at different times in our lives. Right. I think Mary gets a bad rap because eventually everybody wants to eat and she's probably preparing all the food. Exactly. And, you know, everybody has to, you know, the house has to be taken care of and people have to work. You're right. You're right. And poor Martha. But boy, what a great, what a great person she is. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that one of the ways that we know that these are real stories is that these characters have names and they're not just a woman or a woman with a hemorrhage or a a man with leprosy or a blind beggar. They're Lazarus, Martha and Mary, which means New Testament scholars say that they were known to the early church, that these were real characters. And and even in those two stories that Martha and Mary appear, their characters shine forth. And we're still talking about them 2,000 years later. Yeah, very simple story, but you know, just very, very, very meaningful. Uh, I'd like to go back to the Lazarus story. And you have a whole chapter on the term come out. And can you share about come out? 
Yeah. So what Jesus says to Lazarus at the tomb is in Greek. So the gospels, for those who don't know, are written in Greek. The common language of the day, the lingua franca, is Lazare duro exo, which literally means Lazarus come out. The exo is out. So the word exodus, hodos means road. Exodus is a road out. So exo is out. But I didn't want to call the book Lazarus come out uh, because I do a lot of work with LGBT uh, Catholics, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender Catholics, and come out has a certain meaning. And I thought if I called the book Come Out, people will think it's about LGBT stuff. So I called it Come Forth, which is an alternate translation and actually the one that is more meaningful to me. But I talk about coming out for LGBT people as a real important part of their journey, but also for all of us that we're all called to, in a sense, you know, be our best selves, leave behind anything in the tomb again that keeps us bound. So, so the Come Out works on, on two levels. It works, obviously, for the LGBTQ person. But also for all of us, we're all called to come out of those tombs. But I do say that, you know, I told my publisher if, you know, if I called the book Come Out, people would think it was about something totally different. So it's called Come Forth, uh, which is another way that we, we can translate those Greek words. And I think it's really, really admirable that you are very inclusive of the LGBTQ community, because I think a lot of that community has a generalization about Christians and pastors and priests and then being excluded. And I know certainly in, in unity of which I am ordained, we're very inclusive. And I know there are some factions of Christianity that are not. And I think it's just really wonderful that you are. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of my ministry these days. It's working uh, with LGBTQ people in the church, LGBTQ Catholics. And uh, trying to remind them that uh, God loves them and that the, I always say at the church, this is quoting another Jesuit, the church is learning how to love them. It's a process. And um, the story, you know, is, is, is a really meaningful one to a lot of LGBT Catholics too. I mean, you know, when I tell a lot of LGBT Catholics that what Jesus actually says at the tomb has come out, it's really powerful for them because that process for a lot of people in that community is difficult and particularly in religious settings because they feel excluded. They feel less than, they feel like they're always being called, you know, sinners or whatever. And, you know, we're all sinful people in, in different ways. So I really wanted to sort of, I wanted to make a nod to that. The book is, is, is for everybody. It's not just for LGBT people. And I've written stuff just for LGBT people, but it's a really powerful story. And, and thanks for saying that because it is a big part of my ministry. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus wants everyone to come forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think whoever's listening now, I just kind of invite people to, to look at your life and question, what, what are you hiding? You know, what do you have in your tomb, mm. your closet, hidden in the depths of you that, that the world wants to see, but that you're keeping concealed out of some kind of fear, uh, doubt, whatever it could be, because that is, that is what needs to come out. And I think about just... Yeah. You know, watching children perform and how when you watch children perform on the stage, they're just so, ta-da, you know, here I am. And I watch videos of my girls growing <laughs> right. up and there's just, just, just like no self-consciousness. And then you watch yeah. as people grow up in junior high and high school and they start yeah. to kind of hide and, and, and put themselves in their own tombs. And it's that, I think that that's what's being called forth. Bring that that amazing child, innocent, wonderful, wondrous being back out into the world. 
What another great insight. You should write a book on Lazarus because uh, that insight of putting yourself in the tomb, you know, as we get older, that's another, that's a, that's a really great insight that we do that to ourselves sometimes. And, and you're right. As you started talking about the kids, I thought, I know where she's going with this because as you get older, they get more and more self-conscious. And because, you know, in a sense, you're told that you shouldn't be like this. You shouldn't be this way. You're not cool if you're like this or if you're too, well, you know, if you feel like dancing around, oh, that's just not cool. Don't do that. And it's embarrassing. And, and we get more and more unfree. And, you know, Jesus, I think that's one reason he says, if you're not like little children, you can't enter the reign of God. There's a kind of, I mean, we don't want to, you know, like, you know, children can be also kind of selfish and kind of babyish and things like that. But when Jesus is talking about being childlike, I think he's talking about that kind of being open, being yourself, being loving, being trusting. And part of being trusting is that God loves us as we are, right? Even in our craziness and even in, even in the places where we think that we need to grow. And Jesus, Jesus comes to Lazarus. He's dead, you know? I mean, you can't get any more sort of like stuck than that. And that doesn't bother Jesus. He still comes to Lazarus even, even in his death. And, and nothing can prevent God from kind of freeing us, which is an, another way to look at the story. Yeah, and I think that is such an interesting point. Death is so final. So the fact that, you know, Jesus obviously mm. has so much confidence that this is, is not a problem. <laughs> I'm putting myself in Jesus' position thinking how many of us can have the confidence that God's work will be done before us, even though it seems so final and so settled, you know, that that's another lesson for us. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's true. Jesus says to the apostle Thomas, when they say, well, he's probably just asleep, he says, which is a great Lazarus is dead, which is the, the, the name of a novel about Lazarus that I talk about in the book. And you're right. He's very confident. Jesus is in John's gospel. I mean, in all the gospels, he's the son of God. He's fully human and fully divine. But in John's gospel in particular, he is in control and he waits and he, he waits, I think for a reason, one of the reasons he waits is because, as I say in the book, in, in, in Jesus's time, Jewish belief was that the soul hovered around the body for about three or four days. And so I think he wants to make sure when he gets to the tomb, people know Lazarus is dead, like his soul isn't kind of hovering around. But you're right. It, it, you know, the, the thing, death does not, does not kind of make Jesus afraid or, you know, like hesitant, he goes and he says, you know, take away the stone. And the sister Martha says, there's going to be a stench. Basically, he says, I don't care. Take away the stone. And, you know, can we, can we sort of trust that God doesn't mind the stench in us? I talk about things that are rotten in us, you know, is that okay for us to show that to God? Because we're, you know, to, to continue your your sort of insight, you know, the things that we hide are the things that we are embarrassed out about or think are rotten. And we don't want to show that to God, but God really wants us to, you know, kind of in a way bring that out, but also leave it behind in the tomb. Yeah. I had this idea that will be just kind of another idea. I, I don't know if you know much about Jungian psychology, but I also kind of had this idea that. that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So, but the shadow that so that the shadow is a part of us that we kind of keep concealed mm -hmm. and that we don't want to think of ourselves in those ways and that maybe we're being called also to integrate that, to bring that out, bring all the stuff that we're keeping hidden out into the opening so that we can become a full whole being, not just the dark being down below and the light above that, that we actually integrate ourselves. 
That was my latest idea about Lazarus. No, that's, I think that's great. And I think you're right. And I think there's so many ways of looking at it, right? Can you leave it behind the tomb? Can you integrate it in yourself? You know, I have a friend who is an AA and he talks about walking into, I think, the sunlight of God's love. I think that's the way that a lot of AA people talk about it. And that's, that's also another way of looking at this story, right? This, this story, which, you know, as I say, I believe happened and has resonances for us today. So it's not just simply something that happened to Lazarus. 2000 years ago that we believe in, it is like all the gospel stories, you know, meant to teach us something today and to invite us into a deeper relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I know you have another interview after this, and I, I, I want to ask you to share a little bit about your experience in the Holy Land and how it informed you. But before we do that, is there anything else you'd like to say about the Lazarus story and how it applies to us before we move into that for a few minutes? Yeah, I might say that it's, you know, we, we've been talking, we've had a great conversation here, but for each reader, it's going to mean something different. And so I would encourage people to read the book, Come Forth, and to discover there's reflection questions at the end to help to discover what the story means to you, right? Because there might be a part of the story or a way of looking at the story that is particular to you. So I would just say, you know, the, the story is going to speak to you in a different way than it speaks to me and Carol, and I look forward to, you know, that happening for you. Yeah, make it your own story. So is there anything you'd like to share about your trip to the Holy Land and, and what that meant for you? Yeah, well, you know, part of the story, part of the book is a bit of a travelogue. And one of the most beautiful things, and it really surprised me, was Bethany, the name of the town where the story happened outside of Jerusalem, is today called Al-Azariya, which means the place of Lazarus. It's in Palestinian territory, which, of course, you know, the whole story of What's going on today is so is so sort of tragic for all of us. And I would say that one of the things I found the most beautiful is that in Palestinian territory is this town. And they call it in Arabic the place of Lazarus, which I just find so powerful. And so there's this kind of connection between the Christian story and the, you know, the Arabic world. Of course, there's there's Arab Christians, we know that, Palestinian Christians. But, you know, Jesus comes into this, into this place that is at his time riven with violence and division and conflict and tension and brings life. And I think, you know, you know, for those of us who care about the Holy Land as much as I do, it's an invitation to continue to pray for peace and reconciliation and in a sense, new life in, in that place where Jesus himself lived and, and died and rose from the dead. Yeah, and as you were speaking, I'm thinking about this come forth now on a more global level. That we as a civilization, as a society, as humankind are called to come forth and, and create a new world, a world of peace, a world of harmony, a world that reflects God, the divine. So we're individually being called to come forth and collectively being called to come forth. And, and you mentioned that this is this, the horrible violence that's happening in this area right now. It's just an invitation to it's it's showing us how entombed we are, right? I mean, and that we we need to come out of this tomb of war. Absolutely, and to leave behind those things: war, violence, revenge, vindictiveness, right? And to trust, right? I mean, I can't possibly come up with a solution to what's going on right now in in Israel and the Holy Land uh, more broadly. But I do think that you know, to be able to let those things behind and to move into life, right? Because otherwise it's, it's death. It leads to death. And this is not what, I don't think that's what God wants. So I think it is, 
it is a it is a kind of global invitation, a worldwide invitation, it a universal really is. invitation. Yes, I'm thinking about all the roles we need to roll away the stone. We, the 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 life in us needs to come out of the tomb, and we need mm. to unbind. I love that part of unbind him. Let let the new yeah. come forth and be the mm. light. And I think that's really a big role for each of us to start imagining, start creating a new world, unbind this world that we've been in, that we think is the way it always has been and has to be going forward. No, it doesn't have to be that way. There's a new life that we can create by unbinding and allowing that new life to just become. This is exciting. Yeah, and it's interesting that because that's the part that Jesus asked the crowd to do, mm-hmm. right? Take away the stone, unbind him, and let him go. And that unbinding, you're right, is 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 an invitation to the community, right? That God, that God sort of has the invitation, but also asks us to participate. Yeah, fascinating story, wonderful book. I I just love that you've got me thinking about this again, and it's a really good time to be thinking about it, the Christmas season, you know, where we're looking. The, the new birth, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. We're celebrating also the birth within us. Yes. I, I want to give you just a few minutes, whatever you want to say that hasn't Absolutely. been said, if I've lost, if I didn't ask you something. No, not at all. I would just like to say thank you for inviting me on. You have such great insights. Uh, you make me want to write the book all over again. And I just want to tell people that it is, it's come forth, the promise of Jesus' greatest miracle. By the way, one thing I didn't say is the book, it's, it's an important point for me. The book has a ton of pictures. So there's pictures and illustrations and maps and charts and all sorts of things, which I love putting in the book. And you can see images, uh, not only of Lazarus through culture, but images of what it looks like today and what it's like to be in Bethany and maps and things like that. Because I I really enjoy that kind of stuff in the book. You can get it wherever books are sold. And yeah, I just want to say thanks for having me on your wonderful show. Well, it was a real pleasure. Maybe I'll have you on. We can talk about another story. I'd be happy to. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you for listening. And as I mentioned about midway through the podcast, I really, really hope that you are taking this story to heart and that you are thinking about your own lives and you're thinking about your role in allowing the best of you to come forth and to leave behind that which does not serve you at all, to integrate the darkness that you've put down in the basement of your psyche, and to also think about your role as unbinding others and allowing themselves to become who God created them to be. And that's a big role that we have on this planet as we we at least strive to co-create something that's just much more beautiful and much more harmonious and loving. So thank you so much, Reverend Jim. It was so wonderful to be with you. Thank you, listeners. And I now close the spiritual forum, but be with me next week with my next guest. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being. Thank you.